It's good to be back. Missed you all. Any uh, questions from this morning? Or from the last couple weeks? This is, it's been six Sundays ago. It was the last time I was in the pulpit, so it's crazy. Sarah Braun in the middle. I know. Okay, I'm wondering, does Joseph of Arimathea show up at any other points in the scripture, or is he just seen here? He's just seen here. And, um, I mean, I think the other gospel accounts mention him, but aside from this event, Alex, you want to add to that? No. Hold on. Not yet, not yet, not yet. Um, No, he doesn't. There's some traditions outside in church history about who he became and what he did, um, but none of that's certain. Um, So I didn't want to go down that route. And again, um, Theophilus wouldn't know any of that stuff. So I'm trying to deal with where Luke's getting at. But no, he, he's, he, this, is, this is his one and done as far as Scripture's concerned. Um, did you want to add to that, Alex? Or? Yes. Yes. So John talks about Joseph of Arimathea saying, um, he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. How does that work out? And Because when I think of like, Christian, I think of someone who isn't like supposed to be hiding their faith, mm-hmm. but yet you see him out of fear, secretively following Jesus. So how does how does that work? Well, since that's not the text I was teaching this morning, I'm going to have to shoot from the hip, but that's okay. Um, it's it's not good. One of the problems we make with the new te- with the Bible and its stories is we we, we tend to. W- Brad Ost made this point in his Q&A that we want to moralize the text. So if somebody's a good guy, then they're a good guy. And if someone's a bad guy, then they're a bad guy. And if they're a good guy, then they can't do anything wrong. So Joseph of Arimathea can show steadfast love and faithfulness to Christ, just like the men of Jabesh Gilead, by burying his body. And he can still have problems and faults and failings. Um, in John's Gospel, um, if you're lucky, if we're to do John, let's go to John. Go to John 5. Um, so, you see, in John, and one of the things you'll see if you study John, one of these days, maybe we'll go through John's gospel, probably not anytime immediately soon, but probably the next gospel I preach through will be John. Um, Jeff Sermon talked me out of doing it this time, but uh, it'll probably be next. And uh, not that we'll be doing a gospel immediately soon, but is John's got faith and there's faith. There's believing and there's believing in John, and that's clear. So in John 5, Jesus gives this striking indictment to the Pharisees, right? He says, um, verse 44, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Which the implication is you can't. How can you believe and you can't when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God. Go to chapter 12, which is the transition. It's the end of Jesus' public ministry in John. If you remember a really simple outline of John's gospel, 1 through 12, Jesus' public ministry takes place over about three or four years. Then 12 through seven, 13 through 17 is Jesus' private ministry, upper room discourse, about three or four hours. And then um, 
18 through 21 is Jesus' passion and resurrection. So you've got public, private passion, and now we're dealing about three or four weeks when you deal with all of the post-resurrection appearances. And so this is the close in John's Gospel of Jesus' public ministry, chapter 12, and we get this statement. Um, this is the summary of, of what happened as a result. Um, let's start at 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. Lest darkness overtake you. This is Jesus' closing discourse in John, public, for his public ministry. Um, Lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may be sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, then John adds his own sort of conclusion, bringing it to a head for Jesus' ministry. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for Isaiah has said... He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now here's the tie-in with five and Joseph. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory comes from God. Whatever this is, it's better than not believing, but it ain't good. Especially when you get Jesus' commentary on that in 544. How can you believe in me when you do not seek the glory that comes from God, but seek the glory that comes from man? But we've got, they're, they're distinct from the unbelievers. And so what I would suggest to you is, just listen to the disciples, what we saw them do this morning isn't good. We don't want to emulate that. The Lord took measures to bring them back and strengthen their faith. Joseph of Arimathea goes from, in John, a secret disciple to publicly asking Pilate for Jesus' body, right? So he's not secret anymore, right? So someone's faith might be really weak and tiny. If, it's, if this is a true child of God, the Lord will shepherd. He'll leave the 99. He will shepherd, strengthen, confirm, and they won't stay there. They won't, that won't be their, that's not like a category to live your Christian life in. And some of these people who believed but didn't confess might fall away like the seed that fell on the thorny and rocky soil. Time will tell. Does this ultimately birth into something healthy and alive and strong and vigorous, or does it sort of wobble along and flatline? And, and, and John, certainly, I think, in 12, leaves the fate of these people up in the air. Like, who knows how that will resolve? You want... You want yeah, so... Um... That's helpful because, I mean, I've heard people point to this and say, well, yeah, it's a completely valid category to, you know, secretly follow Jesus and mm. doing it out of fear because of Joseph. And so you're, you're saying it's not oh, necessarily yeah. a valid category. Well, that ties into missions, doesn't it? Yes. Oh, yeah, it does. The insider movement and all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's a huge can of worms. <laughs> That's going to be good. Well, I'm going to pause. I'm totally willing to go down that path. Let me see if they have any other questions from Luke, and if we don't, we can go into the insider movement and all that fun stuff. Um, any other questions from Luke? Jake, Hop Jake, Jake Hopper. 
I really enjoyed your point about the certainty of the death of Jesus. I heard this once or twice before, and um, I was thinking about just the biology involved, the, the deadly nature of crucifixion, and I was thinking, there's a record, the Jewish historian Josephus, in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus is besieging Jerusalem. It's in the final stages. And Josephus was assisting Titus as he took over the city and in the process found a couple of Titus' friends or acquaintances that had begun the process of crucifixion. They were literally being crucified. And um, because of his association with the Roman general, Titus had them taken down and given the best possible medical care. It was still early in the process. And basically they tried to undo a partial crucifixion and only one of his friends actually survived. Uh. It just speaks to the deadly nature of crucifixion that even if you caught it early in the process and tried to undo it, and I mean not like threw a body in a cave for a while, but like with the best possible medical care at the time, tried to undo a partial crucifixion, even then likely death would follow. Right. So I just enjoyed your point there. I did not know that that was part of uh, Islam's teachings mm -hmm. on Jesus. I did not know that. How can a prophet die? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, they didn't. Yeah. No, so Islam teaches that, that, that Jesus is a prophet. He's a great prophet. He's not as great as Muhammad, but he's a great prophet. But he didn't die. They snuck him away to Egypt or something, and some other person, Judas. Actually, one of their traditions is, is Judas on the cross. Um, that's, that's one of the schools of thought. Yeah, I knew they, they only believed that, um, Muslims only believed that Jesus was a prophet. I did not know that they believed that he, you know, didn't die or that it was undone, but I really enjoyed your point there. No, and the, I just... no on that, you, you get what a big idea honor is for Islam. That's yes. why they can't abide someone dishonoring the prophet. You can't draw a picture of him. You can't mock him. Uh, because prophets must be honored. So a prophet suffering a shameful death? No. Um, that, that won't go. That won't, they, you can't have that. And we care about Jesus' honor, but the Lord himself will defend his own honor when he returns. He doesn't need us defending his honor in that way, not with violence or anything. Well, th thank you. And let me explain why the issue of the resurrection and the death is such an important deal, because historically, even unbelievers, and this may be a good apologetic line if you're talking to somebody um, who thinks, why on earth do you care so much with this book and stuff? Somehow, anyone who's going to be honest with the facts has got to explain the explosion of Christianity in the first century from a bunch of unlearned, uneducated fishermen, tax collector, riffraff. And these men all, except for one of them, died nasty deaths so you got to get the motivation, right? In other words, you look at people nowadays who get rich off of religion. You look at the prosperity gospel people, and their motivation seems clear enough. Why are they doing this? Because they get nice gold-plated jets. That's why they're doing this. Or you get power, you get control. The, the, none of the apostles were wealthy. None of them lived comfortable lives to a man, except for John, who's exiled to Patmos. They get killed. And so, and the other piece is they couldn't be in error because you might think, okay, maybe they were honestly mistaken. But they either did or didn't see Jesus rise from the grave. What makes them apostles is they're witnesses to the resurrection. So it can't be that they were mistaken. They would either know the resurrection was a lie 
where they would know it was true. They couldn't be deceived on that point. And some people have even gone so far to try to deal with this, to talk about like mass hallucinations. It doesn't work. And then they don't die together. I mean, if you're going to try to get this to be a hoax, all the ingredients you would need, maybe they go down in one big blaze of glory together, strengthening. No, they... You know, Peter goes over here into Rome, and he gets crucified upside down, and they throw, um, who they run, and they impale with a spear. I mean, you can go through church history and track it, but they, they, they die separately. They die over years, and to a man, they won't recant the resurrection of Jesus. That's the, you go through the book of Acts, it's the resurrection that's proclaimed. It's the resurrection. Um, if you read my article this, um, from this morning's um, messenger, it's about the importance of the resurrection and the gospel proclamation. That, that is the big proclamation in the book of Acts is God proved everything he said by raising Jesus from the dead. That, that seems to be the point. It's a big deal. They'd either, they couldn't be misinformed on that point, and they wouldn't back down from that point, and they kept getting killed. And so you've got to explain why. How would they do this? And obviously one answer is because it's true. You're really going to have a hard time coming up with any sort of credible explanation for how it could be done in error. And so that's where people try to come up with these things. They thought they went to the wrong tomb, you know, whatever. And that's just because they've got to come up with some credible explanation because there's no, there's no doubt these bunch, this, this, um, this bunch of surly individuals turned the world upside down over the next 1,500 years. Absolutely upside down. How did they do it? Why did they do it? What, on what basis did they do it? And so people have really stretched to try to come up with some explanations. And I'm, you know, I'm reading, the women went to the wrong tomb. That's what happened. He didn't rise and they just went to the wrong tomb. Except they saw where Joseph of Arimathea laid the body. So that doesn't work. And you go on and you go on and you go on. But that's, that's why that stuff matters. Because... I mean, people today, sadly, don't even care about the historical reality, but that, that's a good question if you can to ask somebody. How do you explain? What other explanations are there? You know, these men claim to have seen a man rise from the dead. What other explanation can you give for why they did what they did and, and were willing to die for it? So, other thoughts, questions? Lucas, man, needs a microphone. Well, unless we remembered all the messages from Luke, it's, it's what the message says. If the Lord would give thanks, and that is a part of the Lord's Supper, but it goes in 1 Corinthians 11, it's the same message from Luke, mm. because about the, the Lord's Supper, it is, it means by... I think it was about this post of the persecution, whether the message says that in the Lord the Supper shall suffer for their sins. It, it, it means any other way from James 4. James 4 is so how he makes good works and for works for Jesus. Jesus says he paid for their sins because of theirs. Listen, our no more. Mm. Yeah, Jesus, the, the part of, there's a lot of symbolism going on in the Lord's Supper. There's horizontal symbolism, there's things we're declaring about each other, and there's things we're declaring about him. 
And the things that we're declaring about him, it's because of this body that was given on our behalf that we are nourished and strengthened of life. It's because of this blood that was shed that we're forgiven. Additionally, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us it also makes declarations about our unity and our oneness. And from what we can tell in 1 Corinthians, it was the Corinthians blaspheming that aspect that was actually, in other words, you're doing a sign that says you're one. And you're, I mean, you got people getting drunk at communion. You got people not waiting for the people to show up. And God won't deal with that hypocrisy. And he starts killing people. I mean, imagine if all of a sudden people started dying in our church. Like, what's going on? Would anyone stop? Is it possible we're taking communion lightly? <laughs> that'd, be an, that'd be a weird thing to put on the gravestone. You know, here lies Fred. He was checking his email during communion. <laughs> I don't know. You know, um, yeah, that got cut from the sermon, but it showed up here. All right. If I could make it rhyme, it would have probably made the sermon, but it, I couldn't, so, okay. But yeah, absolutely. Communion, and this is something that's actually really challenging. Okay, I'll, I'll go a step further here. I don't really care about this, but if I, if I could absolutely have my druthers, we would drink from one cup and eat one loaf of bread. Let me explain, let me explain, let me explain, let me explain. The power of a symbol is in, this, is in the, its effectiveness to communicate the sign. So the further removed the symbol, the sign is from the thing it's communicating, the harder it is to make those connections, right? So you got a rainbow. God hangs his weapon of war, his bow. He takes it. He's not going to kill man anymore. He hangs it in the heavens as a reminder that he's not going to wipe out the earth. Um, you've got different signs and covenant signs. So if you go, go, go to 1 Corinthians 10, I'll show you what I mean. This is not likely going to happen anytime soon. But um, look at 1 Corinthians 10, 14, 15, and 16. I'd also use wine, too, if I, if I absolutely had my druthers. Um, it's not a big deal. Not, it's probably not ever going to happen. But um, or at least have wine as an option. I know churches where they have both. So the people who are either too young or struggle with that, that'd be a temptation. They can take juice. But like R.C. Sproul's church, they did both. But here's why. These are some of the realities of communion that are very, very, very hard for me to see when we do the sign. So I got to work at it by faith to see these realities. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not, the word for participation is the Greek word koinonia. You could also put it as a fellowship in the blood of Christ or of the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. Now, all that grape juice that you drink does come from one bottle in the back, but you don't get to see that. So this one cup, we're all drinking from one cup. We're all eating from one loaf. None of that is readily apparent in the way we do communion. None of that. It doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it harder for those realities to be seen. You know, um, you got to do more work. You got to remember those things. And it would be easier to see those things if there was one loaf and one cup. So, you know, all things being equal, th these aren't my decisions to make. Greg Sweet's ready to shut me down in three. I, I, fair enough. <laughs> but if I were to reverse engineer and just snap my fingers and do it idealistically, it would be like that. It's not a big deal. We just got to do the extra work. But consequently, those horizontal images in communion are probably ones most of us aren't as well aware of, precisely because they're not as readily apparent, precisely because they don't jump out at you. And so you've then, 
As, I mean, because people ask you questions like, well, if you only live somewhere, could you do communion with Pepsi and a Ritz cracker? I guess you could. Now we're so far removed, if that's all you had, that the amount of work you've got to do to see what that sign's supposed to communicate is immense. So that's, that's all I'm saying is that if to the degree that the sign can look like what it's supposed to look like, it's helpful. That's, that's all I'm saying. Um, it's, it's not a big issue. It's not anything that's going to go on the agenda anytime soon. But, but th- those are some of the realities that drop out precisely because the way we choose to do the sign doesn't readily make them a- apparent. Now, there are, you could counter that by saying, well, we're all doing it at once. We're doing it in unison. And, and then that helps. That does help. But, um, you know, I imagine some new believer reading chapter 10, 16, the cup that we, what cup? My little plastic cup, that cup? Yeah. Another thing we could do sometime that I think might be helpful, maybe, I thought of doing this this summer when we went through the Lord, instituting the Lord's Supper, and then it didn't happen, but Daniel and I were talking. Maybe, like, during the preparation for communion, if we took a Sunday and really spent some time doing communion, we could have in front of the people while Daniel or I was talking, the elders, the ushers, from one common vessel pouring out the cup. So the fact that it all came from one source was readily apparent and visible. That might be, anyway. All that's just ways to help make the sign more useful, make, make it point to what it's supposed to symbolize. Again, the sign isn't the thing itself. It points to something, but the better it points, the more effective it is. That's kind of my thinking. Okay, I said a whole bunch of stuff there about communion thoughts or questions on that. Elsa, then Steve. Steve, you are looking very festive. The red and the green, man. It's the season. Well, no, Mary, Mary Nostrander walks in. First question, we're doing carols. Said yes. She said okay. I think she was ready to leave. Otherwise, I'm not sure. Okay. 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 Yes, Elsa. What do you think of um, active participation in the Lord's Supper? In other words, that people go forward once they're ready and participate. I, I don't have much thoughts on that, as that doesn't, to my mind, interact one way or the other with what I see in the sign. And someone might be able to explain to me, there are churches where people get up and they come down and they actively share in the Lord's Supper. Off the top of my head, I don't see how the ushers going to you, you coming to the ushers, would, it, would intersect with what communion is supposed to symbolize. So off the cuff, I'm prepared to answer. I'm fine with, I'd be fine with either. I don't see any importance either way. Um, so I'd be happy to hear someone tell me why it does matter, but that's what I think, which is pretty much to say nothing. Sorry. Steve, in the back, needs a microphone. Sorry, Elsa. Hi. Hi. I want to vote yes as a non-voting member. Okay. Excellent. I I agree with the idea of a real hard loaf of bread with gnarly crust, and I could even go for a big bottle of wine in a brown bag. We should probably Uh, talk afterwards, but okay. Well, if the lady sitting next to me gets herpes, you know, she's not contrite enough. Right. Actually, uh, another thought that came out of your segue into the Last Supper was on prayer. And the idea that we should pray ahead of time in preparation. Uh Uh, For some reason, I like to pray after the fact. (laughs) And... My idea of the purpose of prayer is to give God glory, and I keep getting convicted of um, 
My prayers are so selfish. Am I on the right track there? Would you comment on that? Or, Well, sure. I, I would say, I mean, what, what's Augustine's quote? He does not love a thing enough that does not love it for your sake. Which, which means rightly seen. God's given us a good creation to enjoy health. We prayed for a bunch of people's health. If that's the end in itself, praying for health because health is good, full stop, that's idolatry. If we're praying for a job because income is good, full stop, nothing further, that's idolatry, and, and so on. If, if we worship the gifts rather than the giver. Now, all those things can be rightly enjoyed through God. So when I usually pray for someone's health, it's something along the lines of, Lord, we have been blessed by your gift of this person to us. We've received a lot of grace through that. We've, we've seen you bring glory to your name through that. It seems good to us that you give more time, more grace through this person for your name, say for your glory, for your people's joy, heal this person, right? Protect them, strengthen them. Now there, I'm certainly no problem saying, I would enjoy this. It would bless me. But I'm hopefully trying to link that all the way back to God as well and his purposes because we know God's in the business of glorifying himself and magnifying his name, and I'm tying it into that. Um, if you're praying for a job or a raise and you're tying it into so that I can do these, so I can take care of my family, which is what you've called me to do, so that I can be generous and give to the poor and those who need, that I might have the time to devote myself to more. Yeah, if you're linking it ultimately all the way back up, great. But I, I say for anything that we're praying for, it needs to link back into, into God and his purposes. Um, so, if, so when you're praying for temp, in temptation, if the only reason I don't want to sin is because I don't want to be made ashamed in front of because some of our sins are public and some of them aren't, right? Um, if someone, pride isn't as obvious. You know, drunkenness tends to be, gluttony tends to be, those tend to be more obvious, people can tell. And there's a certain amount of shame and social stigma that comes from, from that, right? And so I might not want to drink simply because I don't want people to think of me that way. And I don't want to get in trouble with the law and get a ticket. And I don't want my health to go poorly. If that's the only reason I want to quit drinking, that's, again, idolatry. It's a form of worshiping the creation. And so if that's the only reason I'm praying to fight sin is I don't want to feel bad or I don't want to... It gets back to, I don't want to, I don't want to dishonor Christ. I don't want to grieve the spirit that's... In, if that's included as well, now I think we're getting to someplace that's right and biblical. Because um, ultimately, the, the, the measure that guides our prayers and God's answering them is his will, not mine, being done. So I make my requests, but I think it helps if I can find biblical data for why what I'm asking might, in fact, be God's will. Yeah. Um, so that's a rambling answer. Does that, that get at what you're getting at, or did I miss the mark? I'm still rusty, Steve. It's been six weeks. Yeah, we almost wanted you to introduce yourself at the beginning. <laughs> um, Fair enough. I don't know how to answer your question except another question. Okay. Do you ever judge your prayers by appropriateness or effectiveness? In other words, uh, do you see results from your prayers? And I'd kind of mentioned a little bit about the nightmares. Yes. And asking those to go away. Yeah. They're not going away. Okay. So then I'm questioning myself. And my prayers again. And I, I want to avoid questioning God. Yes. 
But is that reasonable? That, that, no, that is. Let me come at your thing. We're going to end up in 2 Corinthians 11 or 12, I believe. But in general, I think a maturing Christian should see more and more of their prayers answered because a maturing Christian more and more is going to be praying those things are in line with God's will more and more in general, broad strokes across the board. Um, the things that are hopefully my heart and my passions are more and more being brought into accord with God's heart and his passion. So the things that he's passionate about, the things he's pursuing are the things that are on my heart and I'm praying for. Hopefully over time, that's happening more and more. Um, so on the one hand, Jesus talks about praying with an expectation that what we're asking for is going to happen. Um, it's not just, well, here's what I think's best, do whatever you think's right, whatever. That's not how he teaches us to pray at all times. Now, about your specific request, now you're dealing with a specific thing, a trial, um, in your case, nightmares. Go, go to 2 Corinthians, Jake, is it 11 or 12? 12, okay. See, our, that's our small groups on this, because we're doing 2 Corinthians, that's why. Um, what's your small group doing? We're doing 2 Corinthians. Um, and... <laughs> In 2 Corinthians, Paul asks for something to be taken away, a trial, a thorn in the flesh. For all we know, it was nightmares. He doesn't tell us. Um, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. To keep me from becoming conceited, he just talks about how he was caught up to heaven. He's not sure whether it was just in a vision or in reality, but it was a big deal. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So I would say this, Steve. On the one hand, feel free to keep asking God. Paul, Paul doesn't say the second and the third requests were sinful on his part. Keep, keep feeling free like a child coming to a father saying, Daddy, this is scary. If it can stop, please make it stop. That's great. That's completely right. And while God hasn't answered that, consider that he may have a reason. Here he's teaching Paul to trust him. He's teaching Paul not to be proud. I have no idea what he might be trying to do. If God has he could, simple question, could God stop the dreams, the nightmares? Yes. Okay, he hasn't. Are God's purposes good or bad? Good. So God's got a good purpose in not doing it. The problem with good purposes, good purposes aren't always fun purposes. Good purposes can be training and growing and stretching and difficult. So I also, okay, God, I, when, I, when I pray, for, if I'm sick and I want to get better and I don't get better, okay? So clearly part of this is you want me to learn something. I'm supposed to grow in some way through this trial. Okay. Then my next thought is, then I want to get on board with that. I don't want to fight it. Because I'm hoping that the sooner I learn what I'm supposed to learn or figure out what I'm supposed to figure out, we might move on to the next thing. Um, so I, I don't, we can talk more afterwards. That's my, that's my five-minute version here. Carol wants to answer. And he just, Carol should know because he's taught the ABF on prayer. Well, Steve is in the class, too. Oh. <laughs> So is this an ABF takeover? No. Okay. No, I just, maybe I have to teach the class again for myself, I guess. But um, we, the basis of the class was the prayers of Paul. Mm. And uh, by 
It was on a, based on a book by D.A. Carson, mm. although we just looked at the passages of Scripture. But if you look mm. at the prayers of Paul, very, very few of them are about his own personal needs. I mean, a couple times mm. he prays for safety and protection from his enemies. But once again, it's obviously so that he can preach the gospel. But uh, one of the passages which I memorized is in Colossians. Mm. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Then he has this whole list. You may fill, be filled with the knowledge of his will, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work, strengthened with all power, for endurance and patience with joy, and all of these things. And I catch myself all the time in praying, just going back to the same old thing, mm. praying for people's health and that they'd get mm. a job and so forth. And then I, I go back to this, especially because I have it memorized, and think, wow, I should be praying a little deeper than that. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. it's not. Yeah, it's not that the prayer for health or travel are bad. It's what we're not praying for that should be convicting. Um, you know, a lot of our prayers are for what I would call prosperity light. You know, we're not praying for riches, but we're praying for generally for health, for sustenance, for ease. For and and when I go somewhere when I'm planning a trip, I don't want to break down. So, I'm like, Lord. You ask me what I'd like, I'd like to get there, one stop, nothing in between. Like, I'm not saying it's wrong to pray those things, but if that's 90% of what we're praying about, something is drastically missing, um, drastically missing. So if, if most of your prayers are prosperity light, or if an unbeliever could amen everything you're praying for, or as John Piper recently blogged, if the devil could amen your prayers, that's concerning if that's all we're praying for. Not that we should stop praying for the, the illness or the travel. There's a ton of other stuff we should be praying for. Okay? We got five minutes, and Wanda's got the mic, and then Ron. Pastor Jeremy, you're not saying, are you, that if you remain in an illness, that God is trying to teach you something? Because, I mean, then look at all the examples, like <clears throat> your mother has MS. Yes. I mean, I don't... I don't, you can't just connect that dot, can you, that he's trying to teach you something? I mean, he might be teaching, you may gain from it endurance, um, submission, but I wouldn't think it's, oh, now I've learned it, and now I'm healed. I got healed because I'm I learned it. I'm certainly not it. suggesting that it's as simple as this scenario X exists, so you can learn thing Y, and once thing Y is learned... Scenario X disappears. I'm certainly not suggesting that. Although I think sometimes, it, some things in life can be as simple as that. I mean, sometimes it is like God's getting a hold of your attention about something, and he's getting a hold of your attention about something, and finally he gets your attention, and you confess and you repent, and then, oh, hey, guess what? The thing that God was getting a hold of your attention with disappeared. I've seen that happen in people's lives plenty of times. Um, and so maybe I should say more like, Lord, if I'm getting sick for one of those reasons, let's get this over with. <laughs> That's not always. Why? Although I definitely think, okay, go to Romans 8. So no, I'm not suggesting that if you can just figure out what God's trying to teach you, my mom's MS would go away. What God might be teaching my mom is years of dependence on him. But I do think that everything in life, my mom's MS, my father's becoming a quadriplegic, um, everything, is, is God has purposes in, and those purposes are good, and they're good for me, and they're, they are to teach and to encourage and strengthen and train me. And I'll get that out of Romans 8. 
and other places. Um, Romans 8, so let's go to verse 28. We'll actually go back further to set the context to make it clear that we're looking at ugly things. So in Romans 8, we see a lot of groaning going on, okay? Um, Verse 18, for I consider the sufferings. So I want you to get what we're talking about. Because when Paul's about to say in 28, God's causing all things to work together for good. And I'm going to argue that in the context, that's suffering and pain and groaning and not trips to Disneyland in the immediate context. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hopes the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What he's saying is the creation itself is waiting for the resurrection, for when we are resurrected and glorified, even this created order will be redeemed, restored, and brought back into its right relationship. Right now, it's, according to him, corruption and bondage, right? We know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning together under this bondage and corruption in the pangs of childbirth until now. Okay, so there's the first piece. We live in a sinful, fallen, God-damned world, cursed by God. It's groaning, it's broken, it's decaying, it's in bondage. And the creation is groaning, eagerly looking to the kingdom, and the restoration. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So our bodies need redeeming. We're groaning, and part of that is our bodies are decaying and breaking and hurting and nerve pains going down our arms, right? I talked to Phil, and I'll say, Phil, how you doing? And nothing a good resurrection can't fix. Right? And so some of us are groaning more than others at various times. Our bodies are groaning. For In this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So creation's groaning in 22. Our bodies were groaning in 23. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray for what we ought to, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings. Too deep. So the creation's groaning, we're groaning, the Spirit's groaning. All of that because it's painful, it's difficult, it's hard, it's broken. And he who searches hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes with the saints according to the will of God. And we know, for those who love God, all things, all these broken, groaning things, I think. That's the reason I went back that far, Wanda, is I think you have to take Paul to mean all this broken, groaning, bound corruption that's got everybody groaning, all of that, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. My mother's MS is working together for her good. Not necessarily her fun and happy, but her good. Ten million years from now, she will not say it would have been better had I not had MS. I have to believe that. I have to believe that. That doesn't mean she has to understand that now. She's not required to be like, I get how this is good. Some people do get to that place. Joni Erickson Tata is thankful now 
that she was made a quadriplegic. That's amazing to me. But I don't know if that's guaranteed for everybody to see why things happen or how they happen. But, but absolutely, God is using my mother's MS for good, for her. He doesn't say this for everybody. It's for those who love God only. He's, he's saying all things are working together for good. So we know that for those who love God, all things work or are working together for good. Now, I want you to notice what the good is. Go with me a step further, then by all means respond. Um, who are called according to his purpose. What good? For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Pause. Our Christmas theme this year is going to be the birth of Christ and the resurrection. That's what I'm going to talk about. Because there's a biblical way of speaking of the resurrection is Christ being born. He's the firstborn of the new creation. He is the prototype, the protocos. His, his resurrection, he's the first of the resurrected humanity. And so they can call him the firstborn. That's why the Mormons think of him as the first. They get it wrong. It's talking about the resurrection. So in, the, in a sense, Jesus is birthed at the resurrection. You can biblically speak in those categories. Um, not he comes into being or anything, but, but anyway, we'll get to that at Christmas. Um, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here's God's plan starting eternity past, the predestination. It involves a calling, a justification, a sanctifying, and a bringing to the end. And what Paul is saying is God is causing every atom in the universe to work towards that purpose. So my mother's MS, you, you picked it, I don't mind going there, is part of her justification or sanctification, or bringing part of God's process in call, in choosing, calling, justifying, and sanctifying her, He's causing the MS to work together in that process. It's part of God's process to bring her to glorification. I don't know how it totally works, but it is. It sorry, you get me worked up on something, but well, but, I totally believe that. I've yes. seen that in my life, where I can look back at a trial and go, "Thank you, God." But I I thought you were saying like like. Phil, Phil Hopper, where he's yeah. wondering, if I'm supposed to learn something, let me learn it. The kind of the scriptures you're, that you're re- referencing and that I was thinking of, to me is, get examine yourself, yes. pray, get that you're in a fallen word, world, know he's going to bring you, it's going to work it to good, but don't beat yourself up that I'm not getting the message yes. or you'd fix me. Yeah, let me, let me pause. I don't think you were saying no, no, that. I, I think I no, heard it that no, way. No, let me, sometimes, in my experience, sometimes God brings something to get our attention. He gets our attention. We deal with what needs to be dealt with, and the thing goes with. Not always, but sometimes. Sometimes. When I get sick or something bad happens, my first check is, if that's what's going on, let's take care of that. So honestly, when I, I don't get sick that often when I do. My first thing, okay, Lord... Have I done something? Because there are people in the Bible who get sick and die because of sin. Not all, not all sickness is due to that. Jesus' disciples made that mistake. Who's sin? This man or his father? But we do know in Corinthians, people are dying and sick because they're not taking communion right. So my first thought is, Lord, is that going on? Because if that's going on, I'd like to take care of it immediately. I firmly believe that those prayers, God, search Psalm 139. Lord, try me and test me. Search me and see if there's any evil way in me. Lord, is there something that I'm doing that's displeasing you that I'm not aware of? Those are prayers God answers in, in, invariably. You know, he doesn't say, well, you have to, if you have to ask, I can't tell you. I mean, he doesn't do that, those games. So if something doesn't come to my mind clearly within a few hours or day or so of praying, I move on. Okay, that's not what's going on. Now, 
Okay, God's let this trial come into my life. Okay, great. But usually the first place I do go is in the off chance that this is one of those deals where if I can get my head on straight, we get through it. I'd like to deal with that first. So that does happen sometimes. By no means am I saying that happens all the time or even a lot of the time. So that that clarify? Good, thank you. Okay, okay, great. We are over time. I'll be happy to stick around and answer any questions you guys have. Um, Elsa, yes. There is a coffee sign-up sheet. You want to talk about a ministry of grace? There's a, there's a coffee sign-up sheet for next week. Now, I mean, when I say a ministry of grace, Greg's looking at me. What? Think how much grace is ministered to people through coffee and how much less grumpiness and irritation there is as a result. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. 